Chapter thirty six of the Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter thirty six Hostilities. To fortify a camp. Forts at opposite corners. Explorers have frequent occasion to form a depot. Either a few men are left in charge of the heavy luggage, while the rest of the party ride on in a distant reconnoitering expedition, or else the whole party may encamp for weeks, until the state of the season, or other cause, permits further travel. In either case, a little forethought and labor will vastly increase the security of the depot against hostile attempts. For instance, it should be placed at least two hundred yards from any cover, or commanding heights. If the ground on which it stands have any features of strength about it, as being near the side of a stream, or being on a hill, so much the better. The neighborhood of shingle prevents persons from stealing across unheard, and finally the camp should be fortified. Now the principle of fortification best suited to a small party is to form the camp into a square, to have two projecting enclosures at opposite corners, where all the men who have guns may place themselves to fire on the assailants. It will be seen by the sketch how completely the guns in each enclosure can sweep the edges as well as the whole of the environs of the camp. A square is better than a round for the projecting enclosures, as it allows more men to use their guns at the same time on the same point. But it is so convenient to make the walls of the enclosure serve as sidings for the tents, that it is perhaps best to allow the size and shape of the tent to determine those of the enclosures. A square of nine or ten feet inside measurement is amply sufficient for three guns or archers. The parapets can be built of large stones, a traveling party rarely carries spades, but when they have them the parapet may be formed of the earth thrown up by digging a trench outside it. The common calculation is that, with good tools, a laborer can dig one cubic yard of earth an hour, and can continue working for eight hours in the day. The parapet should be raised four feet above the ground, as that is the most convenient height to fire from when standing, and it is high enough to shield a person kneeling down to load. Upon this parapet large stones should be laid having loopholes between them, and above the stones the tent may be pitched, its pole being lengthened by lashing a piece of wood to it, or by cutting a fresh pole altogether. It will make a high roof to the enclosure, and will complete a comfortable abode. We have thus a square enclosed camp for the cattle, the wagons, and the natives of the party, and, at opposite corners of it, two fortified houses, one of which would naturally be inhabited by the leaders of the party, and the other, either by the storekeeper or by the white servants generally. True de loup are holes, with sharp stakes driven in the bottom of each of them, see Pitfalls, page 264, with the pointed end upwards. The South Sea Islanders use them in multitudes to prevent the possibility of an enemy's approach at night, otherwise than along the narrow paths that lead to their villages. If a man deviates from a path, he is sure to stumble into one of these contrivances, and to be lamed. Holes need not exceed one foot in diameter, and the stake may be a stick no thicker than the little finger, and yet it will suffice to maim an ill-shot man, if its point be baked hard. A traveller could only use these pitfalls where, from the circumstances of the case, there was no risk of his own men, cattle or dogs, falling into them. Weapons. To resist an attack. Unless your ammunition is so kept as to be accessible in the confusion of an attack, the fortifications I have just described would be of little service. 
If the guns are all, or nearly all, of the same bore, it is simple enough to have small bags filled with cartridges, and also papers with a dozen caps in each. Buckshot and slugs are better than bullets, for the purposes of which we are speaking. Bows and arrows might render good service. The Chinese, in their junks, when they expect a piratical attack, bring up baskets filled with stones from the ballast of the ship, and put them on deck ready at hand. They throw them with great force and precision. The idea is not a bad one. Boiling water and hot sand, if circumstances happen to permit their use, are worth bearing in mind, as they tell well in the bodies of naked assailants. In close quarters, thrusts do not strike. And recollect that it is not the slightest use to hit a negro on the head with a stick, as it is a fact that his skull endures a blow better than any other part of his person. In picking out the chiefs, do not select the men that are the most showily ornamented, for they are not the chiefs, but the biggest and the busiest. A good horseman will find a powerful weapon at hand by unhitching his stirrup leather and attached stirrup from the saddle. I know of a case where this idea saved the rider. Rockets Of all European inventions, nothing so impresses and terrifies savages as fireworks, especially rockets. I cannot account for the remarkable effect they produce, but in every land it appears to be the same. A rocket, judiciously set up, is very likely to frighten off an intended attack and save bloodshed. If a traveller is supplied with any of these, he should never make playthings of them, but keep them for great emergencies. Natives, forbidden to throng the camp. Have a standing rule that many natives should never be allowed to go inside your camp at the same time, for it is everywhere a common practice among them, to collect quietly in a friendly way, and at a signal to rise en masse and overpower their hosts. Even when they profess to have left their arms behind, do not be too confident, they are often deposited close at hand. Captain Sturt says that he has known Australian savages to trail their spears between their toes as they lounge towards him through the grass, professedly unarmed. Keeping Watch Head near the ground When you think you hear anything astir, lie down and lay your ear on the ground. To see to the best advantage, take the same position. You thus bring low objects in bold relief against the sky. Besides this, in a woody country it is often easy to see far between the bare stems of the trees, while their spreading tops shut out all objects more than a few yards off. Thus, a dog or other small animal usually sees a man's legs long before he sees his face. Opera Glass An opera glass is an excellent night glass, and at least doubles the clearness of vision in the dark. See page 284. Ear Trumpet I should be glad to hear that a fair trial had been also given by a traveller to an ear-trumpet. Watchfulness of Cattle Cattle keep guard very well. A stranger can hardly approach a herd of oxen without them finding him out, for several of them are always sure to be awake and watchful. The habits of bush life make a traveller, though otherwise sound asleep, start up directly at a very slight rustle of alarm among his cattle. Of Wild Birds and Beasts Scared birds and beasts often give useful warning. Smell of Negro A skulking Negro may sometimes be smelt out like a fox. Dahomen Night Watch The Dahomans, the famous military nation of northwest Africa, have an odd method of dividing their watches by night, but which is generally managed very correctly. At each gate of a stockaded town is posted a sentry, who is provided with a pile of stones, the exact number of which has been previously ascertained. The night is divided into four watches. During each watch the sentry removes a pile of stones, one by one, at a measured pace, from one gate to another, calling out at each tenth removal, 
when all are removed the watch is relieved forbes setting a common gun as an alarm gun the gun may be loaded with bullet or simply with powder or only with a cap even the click of the hammer may suffice to awaken attention for the ways of setting it see page 257 prairie set on fire this is often done as a means of offense but when the grass is shorter lower than the knee the strip of it on fire at the same moment does not exceed twelve feet in width therefore if a belt of grass of twelve feet in width be destroyed in advance of the line of fire the conflagration will be arrested as soon as it reaches that belt the fire will be incapable of traversing the interval narrow though it be where there is a total absence of fuel to feed it travellers avail themselves of this fact in a very happy manner when a fire in the prairie is advancing towards them by burning a strip of grass to the windward of their camp of twelve feet in breadth beating down the blaze with their blankets wherever it would otherwise extend too widely behind this easily constructed line of defence the camp rests in security and the adjacent grass remains uninjured for the use of the cattle if however the wind is high and sparks are drifted from some distance beyond the belt of fire this method is insufficient two lines of defence should then be constructed tricks upon robbers it is perhaps just worth while to mention a trick that has been practised in most countries from england to peru a traveller is threatened by a robber with a gun and ordered to throw himself on the ground or he will be fired at the traveller taking a pistol from his belt shouts out if this were loaded you should not treat me thus and throws himself on the ground as a robber bids him there he lies till the robber in his triumph comes up for his booty when the intended victim takes a quick aim and shoots him dead the pistol being really loaded all the time i have also heard of an incident in the days of shooter's hill in england where a ruffian waylaid and sprang upon a traveller and holding a pistol to his breast summoned him for the contents of his pocket the traveller dived his hand into one of them and silently cocking a small pistol that lay in it shot the robber dead firing out to the side of the pocket passing through a hostile country how to encamp a small party has often occasion to try to steal through a belt of hostile country without being observed at such times it is a rule never to encamp until long after sundown in order that people on your track may be unable to pursue it with ease if you are pursuing a beaten path turn sharp out of it when you intend to encamp selecting a place for doing so where the ground is too hard to show footprints then travel away for a quarter of an hour at least lastly look out for a hollow place in the midst of an open flat never allow hammering of any kind in your camp nor loud talking but there is no danger in lighting a small fire if reasonable precautions be taken as a flame cannot be seen far through bushes keep a strict watch all night the watchers should be one hundred yards out from camp and should relieve one another every two hours at least enough animals for riding one for each man should always be tied up in readiness for instant use when riding alone a person who is riding a journey for his life sleeps most safely with his horse's head tied short up to his wrist the horse if he hears anything tosses his head and jerks the rider's arm the horse is a careful animal and there appears to be little danger of his treading on a sleeping master the indians of south america habitually adopt this plan when circumstances require extreme caution see figure to prevent your horse from neighing if a troop of horsemen pass near your hiding-place it may be necessary to clutch your steed's muzzle with both hands to prevent his neighing hurried retreat of a party when a party partly of horsemen and partly of footmen 
are running away from danger as hard as they can the footmen lay hold of the stirrup leathers of the riders to assist them see litters for the wounded page twenty three securing prisoners to take a strong man prisoner single-handed threaten him with your gun and compel him to throw all his arms away then marching him before you some little distance make him lie flat on his face and put his hands behind him of course he will be in a dreadful fright and require reassuring next take your knife put it between your teeth and standing over him take the caps off your gun and lay it down by your side then handcuff him in whatever way you best can the reason of setting to work in this way is that a quick supple savage while you are fumbling with your strings and bothered with a loaded gun might easily spring round seize hold of it and quite turn the tables against you but as the gun had no caps on it would be of little use in his hands except as a club and also if you had a knife between your teeth it would be impossible for him to free himself by struggling without exposing himself to a thrust from it cord to be well stretched it is an imperfect security to tie an ingenious active man whose hands and feet are small unless the cord or whatever else you may use have been thoroughly well stretched many people have exhibited themselves for money who allowed themselves to be tied hand and foot and then to be put into a sack whence they emerged after a few minutes with the cords in a neat coil in their hands the brothers davenport were notorious for possessing this skill they did not show themselves for halfpence at country fairs but by implying that they were set free by supernatural agencies they held fashionable seances in london and created an immense sensation a few years ago two of these exhibitors were tied face to face in a cupboard respectively by two persons selected by the audience the latter inspected one another's knots as well as they could and on their expressing themselves satisfied the doors of the cupboard were closed the lights of the room were kept low for five or ten minutes until a signal was made by the exhibitors from within the cupboard then in a blaze of gaslight the doors were opened from within and out walked the two men leaving the ropes behind them after this they tied themselves in their own knots and under those easy conditions a number of so-called spiritual manifestations took place which i need not here describe the real curiosity of the exhibition being that which i have just explained these exhibitions continued for months but at length two nautical gentlemen insisted on using their own cord which they had previously well stretched and this proceedingly utterly baffled the Davenports. Thenceforth, wherever the Davenports showed themselves, the nautical gentlemen appeared also, appealing to the audience to elect them to tie the hands of the exhibitors. In this way, they fairly exposed the pretensions of the Davenports and drove them from England. Once I was proposed by an audience to tie the hands. I did my best, and I also scrutinized my colleagues' knot, as well as the confined place in which the exhibitors were tied, permitted. The cord we had to use was perhaps a little too thick, but it was supple and strong, and I was greatly surprised at the ease with which the Davenports disembarrassed themselves. They were not more than ten minutes in getting free. Of course, if either of the exhibitors could struggle loose, he would assist his colleague. It therefore struck me as an exceedingly ingenious idea of the Davenports to have two persons, and not one person, to tie them. I considered it was very improbable that a person taken at haphazard should be capable of tying his man securely and it was evident that the improbability would be increased in a duplicate ratio that both persons should be capable thus if it be twenty to one against any one person's having sufficient skill it is twenty by twenty or four hundred to one against both the persons who might be selected to tie the davenports being able to do so effectively as i have already said the opportunity that was awarded to each of scrutinizing the work of the other was worth very little because of the dark and confined space in which the exhibitors sat 
Tying the hands. To tie a man's hands behind his back, take a handkerchief. It is the best thing. Failing that, a thin cord. It is necessary that its length should not be less than two feet, but two feet six inches is the right length. For a double tie, it should be three feet six inches. Compel him to lay his hands as in the sketch, and, wrapping the cord once, or twice if it be long enough, round the arms, pretty tightly pass the longest end in between the arms as shown in the figure, and tie quite tightly. If you are quick in tying the common Tom Fool's Knot, well known to every sailor, it is still better for the purpose. But the prisoner's hands one within each loop, then draw tightly the running ends and knot them together. Tying the thumbs. To secure a prisoner with the least amount of string, place his hands back to back, behind him, then tie the thumbs together, and also the little fingers. Two bits of thin string, each a foot long, will thoroughly do this. But if you have not any string at hand, cut a thong from his leathern apron, or tear a strip from your own linen. Straight Waistcoats A straight waistcoat is the least inconvenient mode of confinement, as the joints of the prisoner are not cut by cords. A makeshift for one is soon stitched together by stitching a piece of canvas into the shape of a sleeve, and sewing one end of this to one cuff of a strong jacket, and the other end to the other cuff, so that, instead of the jacket having two sleeves, it has but one long one. The jacket is then put on in the usual way, and buttoned and sewn in front. In a proper straight waistcoat, the opening is behind and the sleeves in front. It laces up behind. Tying up a prisoner for the night. If a man has to be kept prisoner all night, it is not sufficient to tie his hands, as he will be sure to watch his time and run away. It is therefore necessary to tie them round a standing tree or a heavy log of wood. A convenient plan is to fell a large forked bough and to make the man's arms fast round one of the branches. It is thus impossible for him to slip away, as the fork on one side and the bushy top of the branch on the other prevent his doing so. And, notwithstanding his cramped position, it is quite possible for him to get sleep. Files of prisoners. When several men have to be made fast and marched away, the usual method of securing them is to tie them, one behind another, to a long pole or rope. In marching off a culprit, make him walk between two of your men, while a third carrying a gun walks behind him. If riding alone, tie the prisoner's hands together, and, taking your off-stirrup leather, for want of a cord, pass it round his left arm and round your horse's girth, and buckle it. The off-stirrup leather is the least inconvenient one to part with, on account of mounting, and the prisoner is under your right hand. Tying on horseback. In cases where a prisoner has to be secured and galloped off, there are but two ways, either putting him in the saddle and strapping his ankles together under the horse's belly, in which case, if he be mad with rage and attempts to throw himself off, the saddle must turn with him, or else securing him with Mazeppa fashion, when four loops are passed, one round each leg of the horse, and to each of these is tied one limb of the passenger, as he lies with his back against that of the horse. A surcingle is also passed round both horse and man. It is, of course, a barbarous method, but circumstances might arise when it would be of use. Proceedings in case of death. If a man of the party dies, write down a detailed account of the matter and have it attested by the others, especially if accident be the cause of his death. If a man be lost, before you turn away and abandon him to his fate, call the party formally together and ask them if they are satisfied that you have done all that was possible to save him and record their answers. After death, it is well to follow the custom at sea, i.e. to sell by auction all the dead man's effects among his comrades, deducting the money they fetch from the pay of the buyers, 
to be handed over to his relatives on the return of the expedition. The things will probably be sold at a much higher price than they would elsewhere fetch, and the carriage of useless lumber is saved. Any trinkets he may have had should of course be sealed up and put aside, and not included in the sale. They should be collected in presence of the whole party, a list made of them, and the articles at once packed up. In committing the body to the earth, choose a well-marked situation, dig a deep grave, bush it with thorns, and wade it well over with heavy stones as a defense against animals of prey. End of chapter 36